Exodus 35 through 40, in one sentence, says this, God came down to settle down with his people. The gospel truth that the last section of Exodus teaches us is that God came down to Israel for this purpose, to settle down with his people. The sermon could be summarized in three words, sin, sanctuary, and son. Sin, sanctuary, and son. Point number one, sin is a barricade. Sin is a barricade. For this, we're going to back up just a little bit to these transitional chapters of Exodus 33 and 34 where we see sin being a blockade, a a barrier, a barricade between God and the people that He has just saved. My aim this morning is to fill us with Christmas spirit. I don't know where you look for Christmas spirit. I'm sure you uh, grew up uh, on some level having great hope in the season of Christmas. And you uh, probably grew up with certain traditions that you would do in order to give you the spirit of Christmas. My goal is to fill us with a God-inspired spirit of celebration. And if we are going to celebrate this Christmas, then we need to kill the humbug kind of attitudes that will kill the Christmas spirit. There are Ebenezer Scrooge kind of entitled attitudes that is inherent in all of our hearts. And I want to address them because I want to kill them. Because I want you to have Christmas spirit. Listen to me. The assumption that God is obligated to give everyone a chance to be saved. The attitude in our hearts that God, if He will not give everyone a chance to be saved, I'm going to argue with you, I'm going to get fussy at you, I'm going to I hate any kind of God, that attitude that thinks everyone should have a chance to be saved, that will kill your Christmas spirit. A humbug attitude will also think very little of your own sin. If you're the kind of person who thinks a lot, talks a lot about other people's sin, and you think very little about your own, that's going to kill the Christmas spirit. You can't have it. We are all born, I want us to recognize this, that we are born with assumptions. That we are entitled, entitled to certain things from God. We are born with the assumption that God should send the people that I like to heaven, and and the people that he sends to hell are the people I don't approve of. That in heaven, what heaven is, we just heard some of it, that he's going to wipe away 
everything that stands in the way of my happiness. And then he's going to leave to leave me to enjoy forever the things that kept me from worshiping him when I was alive. The spirit of Christmas cannot thrive with these thoughts. The spirit of Christmas cannot thrive in a Gentile-less world. When I hear from the Apostle Paul that I and you Texan, you American, were without hope. Because we were Gentiles. We weren't born Jews. We were without hope and without God. I confess, I don't think I ever felt that. I don't think I ever felt that I was at some spiritual disadvantage that the Jews had. I was born into the Bible Belt to a Christian nation. And everyone I ever knew from birth Called himself a Christian. I called myself a Christian. I don't ever recall feeling without hope. And what does Paul say? Without God. I never felt separated. Until I did. But I'm telling you when I was. I never felt like God did not favor me. This whole world is that way. This whole world is convinced that God is with us. With us. All of us. Always. Being ready for Christmas. Are you ready for Christmas? And how would you answer? It has nothing to do with shopping lists. It has everything to do with casting aside and killing your feeling of entitlement. God does not owe you anything. God does not owe me anything. What passes as gospel today, I want you to see from Exodus, was a disaster. What passes as good news today is a disaster in Exodus. Listen, God came down to deliver his people from slavery. And then in the second section, he spoke Words of life to them. And remember at the end of that section, they weren't listening to him. You shall not make for yourself any image to worship me. And they made a golden calf. And so we come to Exodus 33. Look in verse 3. Exodus 33, verse 3. God says to his people, go up to a land. Listen how great the land is. Flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go among you, lest I consume you, Israel, on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And listen to how they respond to this. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff necked people. For if, if for a single moment I should go up among you, the Lord says, I would consume you. 
Now, you won't ever hear anyone verbalize that they want to go to heaven and they don't want God to be there. No one will ever say it. But listen to what they say when they say what heaven is. Who is there when they talk about who is there in heaven? Who are they looking forward to seeing? What are they expecting to do in heaven? And God says to Israel, I'll give you heaven. But you can't have me. And that's hell. To Israel, that's hell. Look, we just heard there's no weeping in heaven. And listen to them weeping. The promised land without the Lord is a disaster. God says what we need to own if we're going to have Christmas spirit, and that is sin, your sin, my sin, is a barricade. I could not be with you a single moment. How good you think you are or how God's going to respond if you were just to run up in his presence on your own. I, he says, could not be with you a single moment or else I would consume you. Listen, every entitled attitude ignores our sinfulness and God's holiness. Every hint in your heart and mine that we are entitled, God owes us some goodness that we think we deserve. That ignores our sinfulness and God's holiness. And God does not ignore it. Christmas spirit comes to those who believe my sin, my sin. This isn't just a theological statement. My sin really separates me, not just from the good life, but from God. And and the Christmas spirit comes to those who own in their hearts this truth that the gift of salvation is God. And if, if you offer me a salvation and God's not included, it's not salvation at all. That's why the less famous verse in Revelation that we just heard, the famous one is, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Right before that, it said, they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the gift. And Israel knows that. It knows, and they know, you got to go with us. And they also know that we want you to do more than just go with us. Now take note, when, when Moses begs the Lord, to come with his people. He's able to arrange an, this, this, this arrangement with God that for Israel is very dissatisfying. He's going with them, but he's way too distant from them. You see this in chapter 33, verse 8. Whenever Moses, look at this. Whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting to, to meet with God, all the people would rise up and they would walk out of their tents and they would stand at their tent door. They couldn't take another step forward. They couldn't go with Moses and they would just watch the man do what they wanted to do. They watched Moses do what they wanted. Go meet with God. And then look down in chapter 33, verse 20. This is a very dissatisfying Nearness. He's going to go with them. But verse 20, 
God even says to Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. If anyone sees me, you're going to bear the penalty of the sins you bring with you. I'll kill you, Moses. Chapter 34, verse 3. God makes very clear that when he's going to show his glory to Moses, he can only see his backside, can't see him in the face or he'll die. Chapter 34, verse 3, no one else shall come with you. No one. Now listen, listen to me. I want to hold out the gospel to you. And that means I have to hold out more for you than just getting out of hell. And if that's the gospel you believe, you haven't believed the gospel. What they have right here would be plenty for many professing Christians. God's near. He's he's there to help. Maybe they can get an encouraging word from him. Maybe they can wield him as a weapon if the bad guys come. That would be plenty for many professing Christians. Is that enough for you? It's not enough for Israel because the Lord promised to save them and they have a sense that this ain't it. God came down to settle down with His people. And so, the last part of Exodus, chapter 35 through 40, we see the sanctuary is built. The sanctuary is built. That's point number two. The sanctuary, that's just a term for a building that's holy. It's actually the holy home of God. God was going to go with them, and at this point, because they're moving, he's going to be moving. So it's a tent. It's called the tabernacle, and God has, earlier when he was speaking to them, he was very clear about how to build this and very precise descriptions as he laid out this blueprint. And in, in our section, what they're doing is looking at the blueprints for the tabernacle, and they are They are following it to a T. So look at how precise this is in chapter 36 and and verse 15. When he's talking about uh, the curtains, uh, this veil that's going to separate the, the, the room where God is actually going to live from the holy place uh, where, where the, the priests uh, would come. That is, that is far, there's only a few people who can get in that far, and there's only one who can get behind this curtain. And in verse 15, look how precise everything is. The, the length of each curtain was 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. The, the 11 curtains were all exactly the same size. Look in verse 21, you got the same thing. Ten cubits was the length of a frame for the tabernacle and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. It's filled with all this precision of following what God spoke to them precisely. And what I want you to see in this first section of Exodus 35 through 40 is that all give to get God. All give in order 
to get God. What I think we learn from the book of Exodus is that a sign that you have been saved is that you will sacrifice in order to experience more of God's presence. A sign that you've been saved is you stop treating your stuff the same way you did when you weren't saved. You would give it all up if it means you can have more of God. In other words, in Israel at this point, there's not a single rich young ruler among them. There's no one who's hoarding their stuff that would keep them from God. Nothing is more precious to a saved person than having more of the Savior. That's a test of our salvation. Nothing is more precious to a saved person than having more of the one who saved us. I want to show you this from Exodus. Chapter 35, verse 5. Notice the Lord's given Moses all the dimensions and the measurements of everything and all that it's going to cost. In verse 5, Moses goes to the people and he says, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Take an offering. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze. Verse 10, and then once we have all this material... Let every single skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded so that he'll have a place to live with us because that's what we find more precious than anything. And I want you to notice how many in Israel respond. Notice how many in Israel respond to this invitation to give and sacrifice to make a way for God with us. I want you to see the words all, everyone, both, or every, in in, in chapter uh, 35, starting in verse 20. Look there. Who responds to this call? All the congregation. Verse 20. They depart from what uh, uh, Moses says. And then verse 21, everyone whose heart stirred him up, everyone whose spirit moved him. Verse 22, both men and women. Verse 33, everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns. Verse 24, everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it. If you got silver, you got bronze. Everyone heard you can bring silver and bronze to make God live with us or to have God live with us. And everyone who had it did it. Verse 25, every skilled woman spun with her hands. Verse 26, all the women whose hearts stirred them to use the skill spun the goat's hair. Verse 27, the leaders brought this. All the leaders are doing it. Verse 28, and they bring all all the spices and the oil. Verse 29, all the men and women In other words, the people of Israel, all of them whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will, happy to give it to you, offering to the Lord. Every, the the emphasis is on all, every, women, men. A sign of being saved is you're more than willing to sacrifice to have God near. It is none of this Bible Belt Christianity excuses. I don't have time. Got to do this. Pre-Christ, even then, that wasn't salvation. And look in, look in chapter 36, verse 5. 
Look at the dream of every pastor, every pastor who is ambitious to advance the kingdom of Christ, and all we need is more resources. Chapter 36, verse 5, God says to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded. Verse 6, so Moses said, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained. He had to stop them from giving. Verse 7, because the material that they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. The saved people of God do not need more than the Savior to make heaven heaven. And therefore, losing everything never takes away the joy of a real believer. If you lose everything, a real believer has joy because we don't need more than having God in order to have heaven. And so you take away everything but God, and you can't take away God from the saved person. There's great joy. All give in order to get God. And yet only a few can get close to Him. If you were to read closely the book of Exodus, you would see throughout Moses went up to God alone, and then Moses went down the mountain to the people. And whenever the sanctuary of God is built, I want you to see this in chapter 40. Whenever it's all built and they're about to put it together, chapter 40, the Lord is communicating to Moses, and he says, first thing is first. You put that ark in, which is the presence of God, it's this, uh, we'll see this, uh, we'll, we'll go back to chapter 37 in a second, and we'll see it's the representation of God's very presence with his people. You put that in God's room, the Holy of Holies, and then verse 3, do you see this? Put the Ark of the Testimony in there and screen the Ark with the veil. Put a blockade in between my presence and those sinners. There is a barricade to get into the presence of God, and it's a barricade even for the priests, except for one of them. One day a year, one priest, one day a year gets to go behind that veil. God is set apart from sinners, even His own people. That's the exclamation point. Whenever the furniture is built for that room of his. Go back to chapter 37 and look at the furniture in that room. Chapter 37, look in verses 1 through 5. You see the ark is made of gold and there's four gold feet at the bottom of this ark and it's carried by these two gold poles. And then verses 6 through 9, you see the lid of the ark or the box that's going to hold the presence of God. It is this, on the lid is this mercy seat made of gold, and it's surrounded by these two gold cherubim, which are, which are angels. Gold, gold, more gold. Communicating very clearly to the people, God is absolutely pure. That's why you've got to put a veil there. So the impure can't get in. 
And he's absolutely invaluable to have there. And what's clear is that the centerpiece of that room is the mercy seat. I think that's clear in the text itself. If you look in Exodus 37 and you look at how verses 7 through 9 kind of come to us. At the beginning of verse 7, it talks about these two angels of gold. And they are at either end of the mercy seat. And then verse 8 uh, talks about the, 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 the angel one on one end and one angel on the other. Obviously, they're focused. They're looking at uh, the mercy seat. And, and so they, they think the focus of that room is the mercy seat. And then verse 9, the cherubim spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces, one to another toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. Now why are there two cherubim spreading their wings above the mercy seat? Have we seen two angels in the place of mercy before this? Do you remember? God posted two angels at the entrance to Eden, and they were guards to keep sinners from, it's a merciful guard, to keep sinners from coming in so that they would not eat of the tree of life and live forever in their sin. The two angels block that, so that sinners would not live forever without God. Now, Israel's sin is no less serious as Adam and Eve's sin, but the blood of goats has has provided something for them. You throw the blood of goats on that mercy seat in hope, and you are inviting God to live with sinners without consuming them. And so all give to get God, but there's only a few who can actually get close to God, and when the book ends, not even Moses can get in. Look in chapter 40, how the book ends. Not even Moses. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God himself in all of his glory fills the tabernacle. What does that mean? Verse 35. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because The cloud of God's glory settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Would be a fitting hymn or carol. That could have been sung at the end of every section of Exodus. Chapters 1 through 15, the Lord saves Israel out of slavery. And then chapters 16 through 18, they want to go back. 
Chapters 19 through 31, the Lord speaks to those that he saved. And then in chapters 32 through 34, they won't listen to him. And then we get to chapters 35 through 40, and the Lord settles to live with his people and not even Moses can come into the sanctuary. God is with them, sort of. More with them than anywhere else. He's been in heaven all those years. Wasn't with Abraham like that. Wasn't with Isaac or Jacob like that. He's with them in this great way on earth. It'd be a disaster if they didn't even have this. But all we have to do is turn the page to the book of Leviticus. And what does it say? Bring more blood. And priests, your job is to guard me or guard your people from me. That's if you read Leviticus, that's what it says. They will be guards. Keep my people away from me and bring more and more blood. We need Christmas because sinners cannot come near the glory of God. So, point number three, the Son is born. If you will, turn with me to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. You'll find that on page 807 if you're using the Bibles we've given you. Matthew chapter 1, the very first page of the New Testament announcing Christmas. Remember when in Exodus, God came down to be with his people. He revealed his name to Moses. I am. I will be with you. And when he comes down again, an angel assures Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. He's just heard that his fiancée Mary is with child and the angel assures Joseph no, she has conceived with the Holy Spirit. This is, this is the Son of God who is in her womb. And then the angel reveals the name of this baby. Chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, the Son of God, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then verse 23, another name is is revealed. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you see the connection between the names? Now can you see it? For Emmanuel, we need Jesus. For God to be with us sinners in a greater way than he was with Israel, we need his son to save us. We need Jesus to save us from our sins. Even when they got free of Pharaoh, they were still very far from God. And the New Testament comes to us and announces on the first page that Christmas is God becoming a baby to be with his people. That's what Christmas is. He's coming to fix 
what Exodus didn't fix. We need a new Exodus. And so John the Baptist, when he sees him, when this baby is grown up, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. God said, if I am near you a single moment, I will consume you for your sins. You can't be in my presence and not bear the punishment for your sins. And very, from the very moment of Jesus' birth, God is with sinners. He's surrounded by sinners and he's restraining his wrath. Holding it back as a baby. Restraining his wrath from breaking out against all the lawbreakers. Why didn't he obliterate his mother? If you've been taught that she was sinless, you've been taught a lie. Jesus didn't obliterate his parents. He didn't obliterate the the people of Israel. It wasn't because they weren't that bad when 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 God finally came to them. No, it's because Jesus' mercy is that great and he's holding back, he's storing back all the wrath that he should be pouring out every moment he's surrounded by these sinners because he's going to take it himself. And on the cross, Jesus offered his blood so that his own judgment might pass over his people. I mean, that sounds a lot like Exodus, but there were a lot of lambs who died in Exodus and they stayed dead and that wasn't enough. It's not enough that Jesus come and be a worthy sacrifice to die in the place of people if he stays dead. So I'm going to go to John chapter 20. If you want to go with me, turn to the right a few books to John chapter 20. When John talks about Jesus's death. It's interesting what he says. John chapter 20. Verse 12. Sunday morning. Mary goes to the tomb of Jesus. She goes inside. And she sees two angels. In white. And look at where the angels are. They're sitting where the body of Jesus was laid. One at the head. And one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Might these two angels signal the final mercy seat? They're facing where the sacrifice was laid down. Why are you weeping? Weep when you're separated from God. Two angels hovering in this empty tomb. They're telling you there's no more blood needed. No more. Don't bring any more lambs. It is finished. That veil is torn in two. It's gone. 
The blood of goats can bring God back to earth, but it takes the blood of God to bring sinners back to Him. And when the blood of God is shed, then weep no more because God has accepted that blood and He's raised His Son to save everyone who will trust in Him and look to nothing else to save them and to bring us what our hearts really want. No one's entitled to God. No one's entitled to God. Not because you pray some prayer is He obligated to do something for you. Not because if you try to be a better guy than a, than a bad guy. No one is entitled to God. Your sins and my sins separate us from Him. We have forfeited every claim on good from Him. And Jesus has lived up to His name. Emmanuel takes away our sin to put away our separation. Emmanuel came and He did His job. He took away our sin to put away our separation. The first thing you should do, and you should keep on doing it, is turning from your sins and trusting in this final sacrifice. There is no more coming, and there's no more needed. He can bring you to God. Now, I want to finish our time in the book of Ephesians. So if you will, turn to the right a few more books into the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Now we spent, I think it was four weeks recently, going through the book of Ephesians. You'd think we'd seen it all. Um, Ephesians chapter 3, you'll find on page 977 in the Bibles we've given. Ephesians chapter 3, I want to see a couple things that even as I have been studying this, this book a lot in the last several months, uh, there, there have been two things in Ephesians chapter 3 that have confused me, and I think by the grace of God, he has helped me to see wonderful things in his word this week. The two things that have confused me is what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, I ask you, Christian, not to lose, or Ephesians, Christian, not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. He's suffering in prison in order to get them the gospel and explain the gospel very clearly to you to them. And he says, I'm suffering for you. Don't lose heart over that because it is your glory. What does that mean? That what Paul's suffering for them to have is their glory. We're not used to talking about Christians having glory. So that's confusing to me. The other thing that confused me, and I've read lots about this because it's, it seems so wonderful. And, and, and there's lots of things that people say about verse 18 that uh, sounds so wonderful. And I've never really been able to, to, to figure it out. He, he prays, may you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses Knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does it mean that he says that he wants us to have strength to comprehend all the saints, the breadth and length and height and depth? That's what I want us to think about together as we close this series in the book of Exodus. Why these references to dimensions and measurements What does that have to do with verse 19, Christ's great love for us, and verse 13, our glory? If the 
Even the Christian world, forget the world, even the Christian world is confused about the goodness of the good news. What is our glory? Why is Paul suffering in prison to get Gentiles, us, who previously in chapter 2 had no hope and did not have God? Why, why is he suffering to get us this message, which he says, chapter 3, verse 6, this mystery that he's preaching to us is that we Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. They, they were the only ones in the world who had God's presence. And now we get to be partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus to, to get God. Paul saying, this is our glory. This is our glory. That we get to be the sanctuary of God. People, not a building. We get to be the sanctuary of God. That is our glory. I think that because he uses the same language back in chapter 2. Go with me. Just follow through the, this with me. Chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you are fellow citizens. You're no longer strangers, Gentiles. You're fellow citizens with the saints, the Jews. And you're members of the house of God, the new tabernacle, the new temple, the, the sanctuary of God. That is built on the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Verse 21 in whom the whole structure, this new house of God, is growing into a holy house where God actually lives. Verse 22, you, I'm talking to you, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul then says in chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, I'm suffering. I'm suffering to, to let you know this. This is your glory this is your glory and if this is boring you right now this is glory that you get christian to have all of god chapter 3 verse 19 to be filled with all not to be watching some representative from your front door to go into somewhere you can't go, you are actually filled with all the fullness of God. I'm going to get to in here in a moment what glory has to do with breadth and length and height and depth. But Paul is exalting and delighting in the wonders worth him even being chained for the rest of his life and then being killed because in Christ, whenever we believe in Christ, we're united to him, we get him when we believe in him and we are united with the people that God doesn't just live with. He actually lives in us. God is the good news. God is the good news. What have I gained by leaving the world in sin? God. God is mine. I am His son. I am His daughter. He lives in me. That's our glory. Trusting in Christ actually cleanses our hearts purifies them as gold so that the holy God can make a home in us. That's what it's about. You can see that. Chapter 3, verse 1. He goes, for this reason, and then he, gets, he kind of trails off. For what reason? What he's just been talking about, that, that we actually get to be the home of God. For this reason, he starts talking about his, his mission to the Gentiles. And then verse 12, he's starting to come back to us being the home of God. Look in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, we have access. That's the language of coming into that room and being with God with boldness through our faith 
in him. And then verse 14, he gets back to what he initially was saying after the end of chapter 2. For this reason, he's back on track. He's praying because of what he just said in chapter, at the end of chapter 2, that we get to live with God. He actually lives in us. And he's praying. Why is he praying? Because he has access. He's talking to God. What is he praying? Verse 17. That Christ would live in you. That Christ would live in you. And then verse 18. That we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. That's you and me. If you're in Christ. That we may have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Breadth, length, height, depth is connected to Jesus living inside of Christians. And and also, verse 19, to loving us to an extent that we need to get more than just in our minds we need to it surpasses that kind of knowledge and goes straight to the heart and our experience paul is asking for us to have strength that we might experience in a real way christ's love specifically the breadth and length and height and depth of that love and what i feel like by looking at Christmas from Exodus is the Lord has answered this question in Ephesians. I think this is right. This whole passage is based on the sanctuary. This whole passage connects us back to the end of Exodus. And in the end of Exodus, there are more than 40 references to height, length, depth, and breadth. Of every, every piece in the tabernacle. In order for God to leave heaven. And live again on earth. With the sinners that he has saved. Back in Exodus they needed to know. They needed to know the breadth and length and height and depth. If you want God to come live with you. You need to. Have this breadth, have this length, have this height, have this depth of the altar and of the veil and of the box and of the mercy seat. And then when they knew that, they had to sacrifice, right? They had to supply all of that. And then they had to serve to build all of that up. And they happily gave it and they gave it and they kept on giving more than enough just so that they can get the gift of God. And Paul says, God, give us strength. That we might comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of every specification, all the details, all it would take for you to live, not just with us, but inside of us. And then, Lord, let them know that for that impossible expense and that excruciating effort, we gave nothing. And Jesus gave everything. God had to come to us. Or we would never come to him. And the son of God came to be with us. People who were entitled only to hell. And he gave himself. That we might live with him. And that's what heaven is. 
So I want to encourage us to celebrate Christmas with the blueprints of the tabernacle spread in front of us. We might consider the breadth and length and height and depth. And Christian, that you would know this, how much Jesus loves you. God came down to settle down with his people. Oh God, we pray that you would fill us up with all the fullness of you by filling us with the knowledge and experience of your love for us in not sparing your own son. It's, that's what it took to bring us to you, and you paid it. In Christ, you paid it. You built this house, and you deserve our glory. You deserve all our praise and all our worship, so make us no matter how tomorrow or the next day goes, worship you who have so loved us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.